wonderful to be with you this morning. So as I said, we will not be doing a Father's Day or holiday-themed sermon today, uh, but we will be continuing in our exegesis of the Gospel of Mark. So now we continue on our way through Mark, and we come to where Mark records the final journey Christ makes with his disciples into Jerusalem. If we have missed it up to this point, we have moved towards the ultimate conclusion of the Gospel. We are seeing the unveiling of Jesus as Messiah, as the Christ. Through chapter 10, we have seen that Christ is the Messiah, and the nature of Christ's identity is made more and more apparent as we move forward. We, of course, looked last week at the story of the rich young ruler, and we see that the rich young ruler came to him knowing that he was a good teacher, or at least perceiving him to be a good teacher. But, of course, Christ recognized that it is not enough to have a good teacher. And he recognized that he cannot be sufficient as a good teacher for any man. He informed him, and he was making it clear to him that he needs God. He needs Christ. He needs the one who is truly good, which is God. And so we see this progression as we move forward through Mark, that we are seeing the road going into Jerusalem. And what Mark is trying to convey to his audience here, primarily composed of Gentiles, is he is determined that those who read his gospel understand that Christ is the Messiah, the one promised by the Old Testament, who has come to save and redeem a people for himself. But while we gain a clearer picture of Christ, that he is the Savior of the world and the Redeemer of his people, and that he is the King who will rule over the saints of God, another picture is coming into view as well. Until now, Christ has hinted at it, but he is about to reveal to his disciples with unwavering clarity the reason for which Christ has been sent into the world, the reason that Christ has come. Perhaps they had not recognized it. Most likely they had not recognized truly the reason he had come at this point. Yes, the Christ has been sent as a savior. The disciples, all of them, no doubt, have been raised to believe and accept the Messiah came to deliver his people. However, what none of them truly had suspected was the method by which this salvation was to come by which Christ was to accomplish these things on their behalf. Christ was going into Jerusalem not to conquer, not to be a conquering king, not to rule and reign, not to establish dominion, but rather to be surrendered to those very powers, to be delivered into the hands of Satan's servants. Rather than to put those men under his feet, the Son of Man will be put underneath their feet, Rather than wound, Christ came to be wounded. Rather than kill, Christ came to be killed. So let us consider the words of the evangelist this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And our verses this morning will be verses 32 through 34. And if you would, when you found it, uh, as is our custom, would you please stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence? So the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, records, beginning in verse 32. Now they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this hour, Lord. We know the hour has come in which your word is to be preached, Lord. I pray that you will use that which is given for the upbuilding of your kingdom, Lord. We know that the word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even to the thoughts and intentions of the heart of men, Lord. We just ask that that would happen and be true this morning, that you forgive the frailties of those, the one who speaks, Lord, but that rather you would use his words for the upbuilding of your kingdom, Lord, so that those that are in the, sa in the saints will be edified, Lord, but those that are outside may be convicted and may be drawn unto yourself, Lord, that they recognize the need for the Savior, and that they repent of their sins and believe in the one true gospel which is able to save, Lord. We just ask that you would uh, allow us at this time for your son Jesus to be magnified, Lord, for him to be glorified. We are thankful this morning for 
his offering, Lord, his sacrifice, his willingness to take upon that which none other could ever in a million years take upon themselves, Lord, that the very Son of God himself would take upon flesh, that that flesh would be made a curse for those that are his people, Lord. We just thank you for um, his graciousness, his goodness, and his mercy. We thank you for the mercy that we find obtained for us in our faithful high priest Jesus, who has offered himself as the very perfect offering for our sins, Lord, and has sprinkled the blood upon the altar, going into a holy place which is not made with hands, Lord, but has been able to enter into the very throne of God himself. Before your throne, Lord, he pleads and intercedes on our behalf, Lord, making intercession for us, Lord, making sure that uh, we are known, even as the accuser stands ready to accuse the brethren, Lord. We know that the very words of Christ himself he stands ready to be our perfect attorney, our perfect defense against these things which are laid against us, Lord. We know he is our faithful high priest, our faithful representative, and our faithful Lord, our Savior, our brother. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Christ Jesus and what he has given on behalf of sinners like us. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So looking at the passage this morning, the first thing we would like to consider, looking at verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. Let us consider for a second. I think this is a key point as I was pondering this passage of Scripture. We have a very brief passage of Scripture this morning, only three verses, not a whole lot there. But nevertheless, even though it is a brief passage, that is not to say it is an inconsequential passage. There's a lot that we can glean, a lot that we can determine from these words which the evangelist Mark has given us. For one, we see that as they were going on the road into Jerusalem, that Jesus was going before them. Jesus went before his disciples. So a key point to consider when looking at this passage is the very detail which is placed within it. Here we see in verse 32 that we are given a crucial detail of the account. Despite the fact that Mark is known for its brevity and sparseness of detail, we see here that he gives us a very crucial detail. And because of the fact that Mark is so often noted for the fact that he is very, uses very little detail, those details which he does use, those things which he does give, we need to pay attention to. And one of the things he does give us is he says that Jesus went before his disciples. We don't find these same details in the parallel accounts. Looking back to Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, which is the parallel to this passage, it says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, so there's details there that Matthew relays, or Matthew does not relay, that Mark relays in clarity. Mark, who is known again for that lack of detail, here provides us a critical insight into understanding this passage and into great, gaining a greater appreciation of our Savior's heart. Mark records, now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. It says here the disciples marveled at the sight of him going before them. Perhaps it perplexed them that no rabbi, no leader they had ever known would do such things as these. Certainly this was not the way of the great men and rulers of their day as made evident by the Gentiles. Jesus makes this exact point in the following passage, linking to Mark 10:42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. The context of this passage, which follows immediately upon the one we are considering this morning, makes it clear that the example that Christ was setting for them was lost upon them and required further exposition by our Lord. The disciples began to squabble amongst themselves because each desired to be great in the kingdom of God, not understanding truly what it meant to be great in the kingdom of God. It is an understandable misconception for the examples of leadership they had had before were not like that which Christ showed them. Rather, they had very poor examples to draw on. On the one hand, they had the example of the Roman Caesars and their governors, brutal and austere men who ruled over those beneath them with an iron fist and based their power off of fear and intimidation of those beneath them. Then, on the other hand, 
They had the example of the hypocritical Pharisees who ruled over their proselytes by binding their consciences with terrible burdens, burdens which the chief men among them made at most a show to uphold themselves. Jesus would later condemn these hypocritical men, calling them blind guides. In Matthew 23, 2, he says to the crowds gathered around him and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. With these two poor yet influential examples on leadership for each of them, it is natural why then the disciples would misunderstand the nature of the kingdom of God. On the one hand, you have the example of these Caesars, these mighty men, these Men of renown, we might say, almost very similar in, in the same way we see that in Genesis. Men who believed in power, who ruled by power, who really exemplified that which Machiavelli said when he said it is better to be feared than to be loved. They took that to the utmost, and they determined that truly they would rule by fear, by intimidation, and by coercion. But on the other hand, you have the hypocrites that are the Pharisees. You have these men who will tie incredible burdens of the law. And in some ways, we recognize that they did these things out of a need of devotion, out of a desire to somehow accomplish the things of the law, and they did it out of ignorance, not understanding the true meaning and intent and purpose of the law. Nevertheless, they were men who had built a massive assembly, if you will, a massive system which they had placed upon the scriptures and had thereby using that abrogated. They had ruined, they had destroyed the very thing which that law, that scripture had intended to do from the beginning. And they tied incredible burdens, yet it makes clear, Jesus says, these men who tie great burdens for others would not do the same for themselves. They couldn't live up to the standards which they had themselves made. And as such, they didn't live up to the standards which they themselves had made. But they expected those things from their proselytes. They expected those things from those that were beneath them. That was the nature of the rabbis, of the Pharisees, of these men who ruled in Israel. And Jesus says, you'll be like neither of those. That is not the example of our Lord. Jesus here makes it clear that his kingdom is different. His kingdom is not like the kingdom of the Romans. It is not like the kingdom of the Pharisees. It is not like any kingdom you will find in this world. These, these two extremes, the religious hypocrisy and the rule by power have been repeated throughout the ages, time and time again. Political power and coercion, on the other hand, religious power and hypocrisy. Both those things have gone hand in hand throughout the history that has gone on since. In the 2,000 years that have followed, we have found countless examples of these things throughout the ages. And Jesus makes it clear he is not giving that as the, the example here. He is not giving that as the methodology. What he is saying is there is a different means. There is a different way that he is looking for. And he says it when he says this, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. These were not simply empty words coming from him. These were not as the prescripts of the Pharisees, who in hypocrisy required much of others, but also requiring nothing of themselves. Rather, Jesus not only taught the type of leadership that he wanted, but he exegeted, he exemplified, he typified the style of leadership with his very life. He went before them. When he walked upon the road, he went at the front. He led them. No doubt these men felt that something great and terrible awaited them in Jerusalem. It seems they did not know exactly what awaited them at the end of the journey. But all of them must have felt this was not like other journeys they had made with Christ before. Yet I imagine it must have been a difficult thing to remain fearful and trembling as Christ went before them. Christ went before the servant he was so that his fearful disciples might see him and know that he went with them. How precious a thing it is to know that Christ goes before us wherever we go. We know that the Lord requires much of those who serve him. We know that Christ has already declared in no uncertain terms 
the cost of following him. When he said in Mark 8, 34 through 35, whosoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Christ never offered men any kind of easy road or an easy life. He did not offer men a bed of roses, we might say. He did not offer men the good life. He did not offer men health, wealth, and prosperity, as is so popular in our day. He did not offer men these things. Rather, what he offered them was a cross. And every man who heard him when he said those things knew what it meant to bear the cross. That was a very clear imagery, one that is probably lost on us. We don't quite understand it because we don't execute criminals on a cross. The cross has become for us sanitized. The cross has become for us in some ways meaningless because we are so removed from it. We recognize the truth of what Christ is saying, and yet we recognize the significance of this cross when we speak of Christ. But nevertheless, we don't understand what it truly means to bear a cross. We don't understand the context. We don't understand it because we look at something like this, which is a clean and wooden cross, but rather what we must recognize is that Christ's cross was a rugged cross. It was a bloodstained cross. It was a cross of humiliation. It was a cross of suffering. It was a cross of pain. Pain of such an excruciating magnitude that we cannot even begin to comprehend the depths of the pain to which one person who might have been subjected to something of this matter would have felt or would have experienced in the hours as they died. We cannot even begin to understand that. Because we have a sanitized view, we are removed. But I hope we can appreciate the true depth of the magnitude of what Christ says when he says, pick up your cross and follow me. Because he rec anyone who heard him would have recognized the fact that what Christ was saying is those that follow after Christ never come back. Those that follow Christ go to their death. They go to their grave. And he was making it very clear. He is not offering an easy life. He is not offering an easy road. When an ignorant, ignorant yet eager young man said to him, Lord, I will follow you whithersoever thou goest, his response was stark and sheer in its demand. We would have probably had different words for him than what Jesus said. If someone comes to us, we're going to sit him down. We're going to try to run him through the Romans road. We're going to try to get him in and make him a Christian. But that's not what Christ does with this young man. Rather, what he says is foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The son of man is poor, he says, and any who comes after him can expect nothing better. He is not going to sugarcoat things for this young man, nor is he going to sugarcoat the road that he promises to anyone. It is a hard life. It is a difficult life in many ways. He is not promising a life of riches or health or success. Rather, he promises a life of continuous poverty, suffering, and failure. He does not paint a rosy picture for anyone. We saw that with the rich young ruler. When the young man seeks to justify himself by saying that he had kept every part of the law, Christ laid upon him a hard command. One thing you lack, go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. Christ did this to expose the glaring inconsistencies in this man's heart. But the command should not be lost upon us. Christ, because he is who he is, does and can command much. The life he calls men to is not a life that every man would take or could take. Yet, in spite of the sheer harshness of that which Christ promises, in spite of the sheer magnitude of that which he demands, we have this to understand as well. He does not offer a cross as a Pharisee. He does not offer a cross as one who would not take that upon himself, but as one who not only offers a cross, but willingly takes a cross for himself. He asks much, it's true, but he has proved much that he will ask nothing of any man that he would not gladly and joyfully take upon himself. Therefore, we can stay our hearts on the promise of that which was spoken by the author of Hebrews when he says, Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our Lord went before his disciples, even as they walked into the very midst of darkness, into the darkest and saddest event that has ever happened in all the history of the earth. And yet there will not be any day that will be as dark, as black, or as evil as that day, I believe, till the very judgment day at the end of the age. Perhaps if they had truly appreciated the magnitude of what they went into, they probably wouldn't have been able to stand. If they had truly understand that which, understood that which awaited them in Jerusalem, if they had truly understood that which they went into, they could not have truly appreciated it. Because if they had, they would have ran. They would not have gone. I, I doubt there's any flesh upon earth that would have stood in the midst of that which they went into. So these men are on a dark road. And you can tell just reading the passage, they feel it, they know it. They recognize they are on a dark road. This is not like other times. This is not like what they have experienced in the past. This is going to be utterly different. And not for the better, but much for the worse. Nevertheless, even in the midst of such darkness, even in the midst of such despair, even in the midst of such evil as surrounded them, even in the midst of the very storm into which they walked, there was a light that walked with them. There was one who went before them. There was one that led them and guided them and was always before them. And I believe the reason more than anything else that Jesus went before them is because they needed to see him. They needed to gaze upon him. They needed to see that he goes before them. They needed that. No man could have done the things that they done. No man could have stood in the midst of these things, knowing these things, feeling these things in their heart, and continued on without seeing Christ before him. If they had had the presence of mind maybe to truly appreciate that which they went into, they might have thought to what the psalmist declared in Psalm 23:4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Even so, we ought to remember the same as we enter into tribulation and trial in this life, which we will no doubt have, if not, already. We most certainly will in time. That the very same Lord that went before these cowering men is the same Lord who went before us into the holy place, into the heavens before the throne of God himself, a better and more faithful high priest of a better covenant who has made a way by the throne of God, made a way to the throne of God by way of his very blood. See, that's the precious thing about Christ. That is the most truly precious thing of all. Yes, Christ asks much. He requires much of men. He requires a life that is totally devoted to him. He demands sacrifice. He demands a willingness to even give our lives if necessary. As many Christians throughout the ages no doubt have, and even to this very day, continue to do so. He requires hard things, and he says hard things, things that are difficult for men to hear and difficult for men to accept. Nevertheless, we also must understand that, yes, he is a one that asks much, but he is one that gives much. He is one that requires, yet he is one that at no point, if he asks a man to put his hand to the plow, he will not only give him the strength to do so, but he will be ever present on that plow with him. He will go with his servants wherever they go. He is not one who rules from behind. He is not one who stands at the back and sends men forward to die. He is not as David did with uh, Uriah when he sent him to the very front in the fury of the fight and then let others fall back so that he would be killed. He is not that sort of Lord. He is not that one who will turn back or leave us or forsake us. No, he is one who is always there at the very forefront at the very center of the battle, he is there. That is the nature of Christ Jesus. 
And we see that, I believe, we see his heart for those men that he loves and those men that he has accepted here in this passage. Yes, a very brief passage, a very brief moment, but one with such clarity as to how precious these men were to him, how precious his sheep are to the shepherd. And he is the most faithful shepherd that we could ever ask for. He is the shepherd that willingly gives his life for the sheep. He is that. He is that to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so therefore we can have confidence in him, knowing that because of these things, because of the fact that he is a faithful high priest, because he is a faithful shepherd, because he is one that leads from the front and not from the back, because he is one who has made a very way into the holiest place, the one not made by hand but before the very throne of God himself, and has made an offering that is sufficient and complete by way of his very blood. Therefore we can do as Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly, to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in help in time of need. There is help for us in him if we avail ourselves of it. I fear that we too often fail to avail ourselves of it. We seek to stand in our own power, afraid to yield and fall to our knees. And I'm afraid one of the problems we have because we live in a culture where we don't have a requirement to fall on our knees enough. We are men who are sufficient We are people who are well-fed. We are a people who are fat and lazy, and we have not truly appreciated what it means to feel pain, suffering, loss, emptiness, struggle, heartache, such of the degree and magnitude to which men must go to their knees, which requires men to go to their knees. Because I would say these men at this moment in time did not have the strength in themselves to stand. They did not have the strength in and of themselves to continue on this road. Did they understand fully what they were going to? No, they did not. But that being said, they did not. They recognized there was something that was going to happen. They may have not fully recognized the magnitude of it, but they could feel it, and they were afraid. And so we need to recognize in our own lives that we have to rely on his strength and his power because we need to be a people on our knees. We need to be a people that are acquainted with falling before a holy God, relying on him when we have no strength to stand. And I would pray, really, I would honestly pray that for each of us, we need more of that in our lives. We need more things that require us to be driven to our knees. We need more things which are of such a great magnitude that we cannot stand upon our own strength. And we must fall upon him who is faithful to deliver us. We can see here in the passage, his disciples trembled as they approached Jerusalem. The disciples were full of fear and trepidation as they went towards Jerusalem. In spite of Christ's comforting presence, their hearts were troubled. Though they could not have possibly known the full weight and gravity of that which they walked headlong towards, no doubt they knew that this was not anything they had known before. What awaited them was something no one had seen or felt or experienced before, nor would anyone ever experience anything comparable ever after. What they suspected or what they had determined their own hearts, the Lord alone knows, and sacred scripture does not disclose. But I think we can surmise enough I would ask us to take a moment to try to imagine what these men felt in the midst of these things. We have the advantage of being able to know the end result of what is going to happen. They had no such luxury as they walked this road. What awaited them on the end of the road was a complete mystery to them. But if we look, we can see they had been told clearly what awaited them. The Lord had not concealed why they were going to Jerusalem. A chapter earlier, Mark records... For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. In the parallel passage in Luke 9.44, Jesus says to them, Let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. It was not Christ's desire that those who were with him should not know what awaited him. He concealed nothing from his disciples. He gave them an exact description of what was to happen. 
Yet it records that these things did not take root within them. They did not comprehend Christ's words. As Luke 9.45 records, the things which Christ told them were hidden from them, but they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Not only did these sayings not take hold with them, but rather these things were hidden from them. Mark records rather bluntly in Mark 9.32, but they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. To put it very simply, the disciples did not get it. And they were too afraid to ask him to clarify. I think it would be fair to surmise to say that the disciples did not ask for Christ to clarify what he was saying simply because they really didn't want to know the answer. The things which he said to them confused them and it terrified them. And they decided in their hearts that ignorance was a safer refuge than knowing the answers to the questions within them. And that is a common response. Many of us do that in our day-to-day life. Sometimes we would rather not know the answer to the question. You know, I would say, thinking back to my childhood, my father always said, don't ever ask a question you're afraid to get the answer of because you will get the answer. (laughs) And the truth is, um, I think Christ is very much the same way. They knew he would give them a straight and solid answer to any question they asked. They knew that. They trusted in that. But they did not avail themselves of that. I think that was purposeful. I think that was intentional. They didn't want to know. Sometimes it's better not to know. Sometimes we think in ourselves it's better not to know. And maybe they thought ignorance was a safer refuge. So I would say most likely they they didn't understand because they refused to understand. They didn't want to know the answer. And how many people have truly chosen to live in ignorance rather than face the consequences of knowing the truth? I'm sure there's no doubt been many people who have ultimately passed away from cancer that would have otherwise been treatable because they refused to go and seek proper treatment and diagnosis and thereby be saved. Rather, they waited until the pain was so great and it was so difficult that they could not continue on. So therefore, as a result, ultimately they perished. By the time they got there, the doctor could do nothing for them. And so ignorance is no refuge. Ignorance does not make hard things or evil things or difficult things go away. Just because you put your head, bury your head in the sand, if you will, and hide from it, does not destroy, does not put away the truth, the reality of how things really are. So it can be a dangerous thing choosing to dwell in intentional ignorance. And that is as true for spiritual things as it is for physical things. We know that the word of God is that which heals. But we also know that it must hurt before it heals. Before any man can be made to know the sweetness of Christ, he must be faced with the bitterness of sin. Before one can know there is hope in Christ, he must know that anything and everything he places his trust in is hopeless and vain apart from Christ. Before the grace of God can be shed abroad in our hearts, we must first have the law of God brought to bear upon our hearts so that we know that we cannot have any hope in our own efforts or in our own standing. The law must become that schoolmaster, as Paul said, that shows us how bankrupt our works truly are so that we are then driven to our souls to throw ourselves upon the only source of salvation, Jesus Christ. Yes, it is necessary to know that there is hope, but it is sometimes more needful to know that there is hopelessness. Specifically, we must know that there is complete, utter bankruptcy and hopelessness in our own labors and in our own efforts. There is complete hopelessness in standing in ourselves and in saving ourselves. That has been the lie that has sent more men to hell than anything, the belief that ultimately you can find standing before God, you can appease God by doing and by acting and by being good enough. Because the truth is we must recognize we cannot. My friend, you cannot keep the law. None of us can keep the law of God perfectly. That was, what, that was how the rich young ruler had deceived himself because he believed, I can truly keep the law. I can make it happen. I just need one more thing to get me to that edge. I just need to ask this good rabbi here 
for that one thing that I lack so that I can make it over the edge and I can have eternal life. And what Jesus was trying to tell him more than anything else, trying to drive home more than anything else, is it's not a single speck that separates you from the kingdom of God. It is a cavern that stretches to the moon and back. You can't make it. There's no chance. There's no hope in yourself. If you're going that road, you will fail. If you're going down that path, you will perish in hell eternally. If you go down that road, there is no life there. There is only life in recognizing your hopelessness. So is hopelessness a good thing? Well, it can be in the right context. We need to have hopelessness at some point. The Christian recognizes at one point in your life, you were hopeless. You were without hope. There was no way forward in yourself. And so if you have truly repented of your sins and believed in Christ, it was because of the fact that you realized, I cannot do this according to my own effort and according to my own strength. I cannot. And as a result, you stand in Christ this day, not because of your effort, not because of your work, not because of your labors. You stand today because of Christ's work and Christ's labor and Christ's effort on your behalf. So it's important to know hope, yes, but to know hopelessness. In truth, the disciples here, I believe, needed to know the despair of the Jerusalem road because it was that which would lead to the joy that comes after. As the psalmist testifies in Psalm 35, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor for a life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. We must know that the Lord is just, and we must know that he is wrathful against sin, to know that he is merciful and gracious to those that love his son. We must have both. We must have both the law and we must have the gospel. In truth, the gospel is meaningless apart from the law. Both are necessary. For the law must be born against the hearts of every man and woman who has ever been born so that they will repent of their sins and trust in him, recognizing that there is good news. But the reason we have good news is because we also realize there is bad news. There is despair. There is a lot to be despaired of this morning. And I would say if you stand this morning outside of Christ, I would hope that you feel hopelessness. I genuinely would hope that you would feel hopeless. I genuinely would hope that you would despair. I genuinely would hope that you would feel in yourselves that growing trepidation which these men felt on this road. I I wish that you could feel ten times what they felt because the truth is the most dangerous place you can be this morning is outside of Christ and content and happy and hopeful because that will be just enough to keep you content and happy right through the door of hell. Yes, if you are outside of Christ this morning, you need to feel hopeless. You need to feel the law of Christ. You need to feel the severity of his command because you need that to drive you to him who is able to overcome those things on your behalf, who bled and died on behalf of you if you will come and repent and believe in him for salvation. Those things can be availed to you this morning if you will recognize the bankruptcy of your own effort and your own labor and your own hope. And you will put your hope in the one place where you can truly have life and obtain it, and that is in Christ himself. I think it's interesting here that Christ offers no real comfort here to his disciples. All he really provides is a stark revealing of that which awaits him. He tells them, the Messiah has come to suffer. Now, having said all the things we said about where these men are at this point, the hopelessness they feel, the depression, the fear, the trembling, all of these things, it would seem the natural inclination of our hearts at this point would be to say, this is a good time for Christ to offer some comfort. This would be the point of time which Christ, looking upon these fearful men and their failing hearts, would take them aside and offer some comforting words. He could have belabored the victory that awaited him on the other side of the cross. He could have told them that he went forward to conquer death and to redeem a people for himself. He could have told them all the positive, good things. Yes, he could have done that. However, he says nothing about those things. What he instead says is incredibly short. 
in verses 33 and through 34, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. What Christ does instead is only double down on that which he had already revealed to them. He gives further exposition and detail to the things that would fall upon him. He gives his disciples with prophetic clarity that which is waiting. He details to them everything that was to come to him. He tells them that he is not that he is to be betrayed into the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. He will be condemned, delivered to the Gentiles, where he will be scourged and mocked and spit upon and ultimately killed. In a brief end note, Christ says he will rise the third day. To many of us, we may think that the emphasis in this passage is all wrong. As we've stated, those with Christ are already feeling fearful. They are already downtrodden at this point. Why is he beaten on them more? Why is he seeming to put them down more at this point? Why is he placing this upon them as a burden when they are already burdened enough, we might think? We would think here the emphasis is really should be on the last part, that he will rise again on the third day. That's good news, right? That's hope. But that's not where the detail lies, is it? The detail lies on those things which are truly fearful and terrible things at this point. He lays upon them the reality of where they are going and what they are doing. What Christ chooses to do at this point is he gives a quick but thorough blow-by-blow description of everything that would befall him. He details his sufferings for them. The reason for this becomes apparent if we consider the context from which his disciples come. The concept of the Messiah, the one who would deliver the people of God as outlined in the scriptures, was one which they were well acquainted with. However, their view of the Messiah was a skewed view. The rabbis had made a great deal of emphasis of the victorious nature of the Messiah, how he would conquer his enemies. The victorious nature of the Messiah as conquering king had been emphasized and overemphasized to where the Christ, in Christ's day, most Jews looked to the Messiah as a political savior, one who would come to overthrow the Roman rule and reestablish a political kingdom like unto that of David, and that he would deliver the Jewish people from their oppression. What the disciples knew and looked for was the conquering hero, that which was promised in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The disciples were looking for one who would be a king after David, sitting upon his throne and ruling over his kingdom. That which was by, foretold by David when he said in Psalm 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, till I make thy enemies thine footstool. And again, what was said by the psalmist when he declared in Psalm 2, 1-6, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. That is what they look for. They look for... The day in which, yes, all the kingdoms of the earth will be roused against the Lord. All the, all the forces of the world will be roused against them, set against them all round about. And that the Lord himself, in mocking and laughing, would say, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill, and will destroy them utterly. This is the very reason that there was so much squabbling among them about who was the greatest or the best because they believed that they followed the Messiah. But because they misunderstood who the Messiah was and what he came to do, they did not understand truly what his kingdom is. 
They adopted the view of the day which said he was a conquering king, but failed to recognize that there was another aspect of this promised Messiah. What the scriptures declare of Christ are true. He is a conquering Lord. He is a king, the mighty God, who has been set upon the holy hill of Zion. He is the one who rules and sits upon the throne of David, the one who will judge the world in righteousness. Yes, all these things are true of him. But he is not only a conquering king, but Christ is also a suffering savior. What the Jews of Christ's day, and as a result, his own disciples likewise, had failed to grasp was that the Messiah was not only promised to rule his people, but to suffer for them also. For Isaiah did not only promise a king to his people, but a lamb. When he said in Isaiah 53, 4 through 5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Christ had not come this time to reign, but rather he had come to suffer. He came to bear the sins of his people. He came to be made a curse for those that were cursed afar off from God. He came to become the sacrificial lamb which the old covenant had foretold. He had come to fulfill that which John the Baptist had foreseen of him when he, beholding him, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had come to offer his blood upon the altar as not only the faithful high priest, but the obedient offering, who, as Peter says, is without spot or blemish. He came to fulfill that task which he had volunteered to undertake before the world began, that he might be, as Revelation says, the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. What the disciples needed most was to know that Christ came to suffer, not reign. His purpose in coming this time was to, as it says, be oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb for the slaughter, and as, as a sheep before his shearers is silent. They needed to know that there would be no mighty coming with power or might to conquer all his enemies. There would be a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, yes. Yet there would follow a swift reversal, as the very ones who cried in the street, Hosanna, Hosanna, as he came into the city, would call for his crucifixion as he was led outside the very same city outside the camp to be made an offering. They also need to know the true meaning of power and strength, not as the Gentiles believed, in one coming with might and power to conquer, rather one who willingly gave his life, laid his very life so that he might win a people for himself. So then, in making, in making a, uh, a brief application on this passage here, a few things to consider. For one, we have one who goes before us. We must never forget that there is one who has conquered death on our behalf. There is one who went before us outside the camp that he might be made our sacrifice and our propitiation. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I think the words of Hebrews give us great clarity and testimony of the example in this case. Hebrews 12, 3 says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. When we face hardships in this life, we have one who has endured a hard and difficult road on our behalf. The brow that, slept, that sweat drops of blood on our behalf inclines to us in our hour of need. The hands that were scarred and nailed are open to us, outstretched. The body that was broken for us stands with us so that we have strength to stand. For let us also think of the admonishment of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 4. You have not yet resisted unto bloodshed, striving against sin. When we grow weary with the war against sin, when sin looms large in our minds and we think about going back to it, let us consider that we have not yet striven to bloodshed in our sins, for our sins. 
We have brothers and sisters in the world this day who have given their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ, laid them down for Christ. We ought to then gladly be willing to give the least, which is to offer our lives as sacrifices to him. As Paul says in Romans 12:1. For I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. Let us consider what it means to offer our bodies a sacrifice. Everything that does us, everything that is belonging to us, belongs to him. He has ransomed us, and so therefore we are not ours, but we are his. As Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. And yet not, it is not I that lives, but Christ that lives within me. That is what it truly means to give our lives as a living sacrifice unto God, so that everything about us, all that we are, all that we have, and all that we do, is given totally and completely to all that he is. So that ultimately, our thoughts should be his thoughts. Our time should be his time. Our lives should be his life. Our wealth should be his wealth. All the things that belong to us should belong to him. We should be willing to lay, lay all of that before him. And it's not just about the physical aspect. It's about the whole man. Everything about him must be given to Christ. Because yes, you can give everything in your life, even, to Christ and, and still be lost. You can give everything monetarily, ultimately, to him. I mean, that's really the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13. You know, if I don't, yea, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I have become as a sounding brass and as a tinkling cymbal. And yea, though I can understand all things and understand all mysteries and have the faith enough to say to this mountain, move and it move and have not love, I am undone. And yea, though I even give my body to be burned at the stake, and have not love, it profiteth nothing. Yes, you can give everything with Christ. You can give your life for Christ even. But it's not necessarily giving your body. It's not giving your wealth. It's not giving your money. If your heart's not in it, you can keep your money. If your heart's not in it, you can stay where you are. If your heart's not in it, don't waste your time giving a sacrifice of your life. Don't go to the stake to burn if you don't truly have given your heart to him have truly surrendered everything that is you to him. Because that's what he is asking you. That's what it means to give your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto the Lord. Recognizing that we should not at this point grow faint in our journey. We must follow him faithfully, for we remember also he does not ask these things of us lightly, nor does he ask these things hypocritically, because we know he has gone before us. The path is one he has already trodden on our behalf. Again, what does Hebrews say of him in Hebrews 13, 11 through 12? For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. The sacrificial system of the Levitical priesthood required that the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought in to make atonement upon the altar should have their bodies taken outside the camp to be burned. This hereby typified that which would be brought fully into fruition in Christ. For the blood was the offering that satisfied God's wrath, and the animal being brought outside the camp symbolized the sins of the people being disposed of. Christ, therefore, is providing a righteous sacrifice, his blood, and has made a curse, made sin, and this shown by the fact that he was brought outside the gate to suffer. Therefore, positively, God's wrath is satisfied, and negatively, sin is destroyed. This Christ has done on our behalf. Therefore, since he has done this for us, let us then willingly follow after him, picking up our own cross with confidence, since we recognize that we have one, a captain, who is made perfect in suffering for our souls. Everything he is asking of us, he has gladly done and more. Therefore, since he has done this for us, let us then willingly follow after him, picking up our own cross with confidence since he first carried a cross for us. Therefore, says Hebrews, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. I think it's important what he says there that we have no home in this world. 
Well, you're not seeking after a city that is impermanent or ultimately doomed for failure. We are not seeking for that which fades away. We are seeking for an eternal city, a city that has no end, a city that ultimately will never perish, will never fall, will never be overtaken by any, any uh, conquering army, and also one in which will never be sank into the darkness of night. There will be no night there. The Lord himself will be our light. So therefore, let us press on. Let us go to him outside the camp. Christ has not only offered to suffer, but he has given all things on our behalf. He has been made a perfect offering for us. And so Hebrews says, therefore, be willing, gladly, willingly to follow after him, to go where he is, to suffer as he suffers, to endure the things that he has endured. Can we endure them fully and completely? No, we cannot, because we cannot take upon ourselves the sins of every, of every, uh, every one of the elect to have it atone for within us. We cannot do that. But we can pick up our own cross, knowing that Christ has promised us one that we should follow in him. We must recognize that the things that he ultimately offers us are greater than the sufferings and those things which we lose. Yes, the things that, the things that Christ asks, he will request us to give up things in this life, to sacrifice things, to put aside the things we want, the things we desire, for the glory of those things that are his. But understand what Christ has said. There is not one who has given up father or mother or sister or brother who will not attain man manifold more fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers in the kingdom. There is not one sacrifice that has been given on the behalf of Christ in the service of his kingdom that has not been rewarded tenfold, twentyfold, a hundredfold in the life to come. Yes, he requires much, but again, yes, he has offered much, and yes, he delivers much to those that love him. Yes, he promises, and yes, he is able to give those things, give all them and more to those that are in Christ Jesus. So then I would also ask, let everyone search their hearts and consider whether we are walking this morning in ignorance. Keep in mind that we should not be as the disciples who, when faced with the difficult truths of God's word, chose to willfully keep themselves in darkness because they feared the answer. The word of God has hard words to say to us. When the crowds heard Christ, it is recorded in John 6 that many of his disciples, the disciples, not the crowd, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? It also says that many of his disciples turned back that day because they learned that Christ does not always come with pleasant words or easy sayings. The word is profitable, Scripture says, for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, complete, and thoroughly furnished for every good work. The word gives us instruction and doctrine, it is true. However, it also gives us reproof and correction and is instruction in the things we are to go. Sometimes correction, though, can be a hard thing to endure. As we have said, the word, if it is to be effective, must wound before it can heal. As a surgeon must first injure the patient in order to, for the healing to begin, the word must lay bare the wickedness, the wickedness in our hearts in order for it to bring us into life. The law must make us despair of any hope in ourselves before we can ever truly rest in the hope which is found in Christ. And even those of us who are Christians, in order for us to truly have joy and comfort in this life, must endure the chastening of the Lord. For again, Hebrews offers us wisdom here in Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. The chastisement of the Lord, though it may not feel pleasant in the moment, is important for us as believers. It is that which tells us that we are his. It is a fearful thing then. For us, if we have no chastening from him, the Lord corrects his children. The Lord provides correction. And yes, correction can be painful in its time. Yet we need that correction in our lives because we know that the Lord will not allow someone who belongs to him to abide in sin without being corrected. So therefore, let us not be ignorant, brethren. Let us not be ignorant of those things which Christ has taught us. 
let us hold fast the confession of our faith. And so there are two things I think we can consider this morning here. I have two final words for each and every one of us, or at least for two different kinds of people, if you will. Those that are in Christ and those that are out of Christ. For those that are in Christ, I would encourage you this morning to recognize and look towards your Savior, knowing that you have a Savior who is one who sits upon the throne, sits by the throne of God himself, who has, on your behalf, swept drops of blood for you, who has endured scourgings and beatings for you, who had the very hairs of his beard plucked out one by one on your behalf, who wore a crown of thorns for you, who bore a rugged and a heavy and a difficult cross for you to the very place outside the gate which he was to suffer for you. He has done all these things and more for you if you are in Christ Jesus. He is one who has given manifold more than could ever be repaid on behalf of you. And some would look at that and ask, why would he do such a thing? And because of his love. Pure and simple, because of his love, because of the fact that we serve a loving and gracious God, because of the fact that, yes, while God the Father is just and requires ultimately that all sin be punished, he recognized that those sinful sons of Adam could never rescue themselves, could never in a million years ever escape the judgment that was to come. And he could have left them there because they deserved that. That's what they deserved. That was what was right. That was what was just. Nevertheless, God the Father and God the Son counseling themselves before the ages began to in themselves determine that God the Son would take upon human flesh and that he would suffer these things. He would walk this road and that he would endure these things and he would do them for you. I think it's an incredible thing, a blessed thing we have this morning to be partakers of that grace because truly it is unmerited grace. It is unmerited favor from, from God himself. And as such, let us therefore then gladly follow after him, knowing, again, he goes before us. He walks ahead of us. He did not merely save us and then leave us to ourselves and to our own devices. Rather, he has walked this road. He has suffered these things. He has endured these things. He went to the cross. He went to the grave. He was resurrected again. He has risen to the right hand of the Father. He has done all these things, not merely to make us acceptable in him right now, but he is also drawing us forward to an age in which we will be glorified, exalted, to be joint heirs with Christ for all of eternity. And he stands before the throne of God this morning as we have sung this morning. And he is one that forever pleads on your behalf. He pleads your cause before God himself. And he is your advocate, the greatest advocate and friend you could ever hope for. He is all that and more for you. But I would also say this is a word of warning to those that are without Christ. Recognize the fact that to spurn such a thing as what God has given in the olive branch of Jesus Christ himself when he has endured such things that if you do not repent of your sins and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will perish. You will be destroyed in the very wrath of God, which Christ himself endured on behalf of his elect people. So I would encourage you this morning, believe in Christ today. And don't be discouraged. I know some people hear things like, well, Christ died for the elect. Christ, then can he really have died for me? My dear brothers and sisters, recognize the fact, yes, Christ has died for an elect people. I don't know who those people are, but I can promise you this. There is not one person in all of human history who, if they have truly repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, that Christ has turned away. That is not the character and nature of Christ Jesus. If you are truly repenting of your sins and believing on him, he will not cast you out. He himself says that I am meek and lowly in spirit. Come unto me all that labor and heavy laden, and I will not cast out. He will do that for you if you will come to him. Don't tarry another day. Don't hold off because the judgment will not hold off forever. Perhaps you are not part of his elect and you will, be, you will perish in judgment today if you do not put your trust in him now. 
I would encourage you, put your faith in him. Surrender to him, knowing that that is the only way you will have life is through him and him alone. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us to come together this time to worship, Lord. We thank you for the right and the authority we have to come before you this morning, Lord. We thank you for the fact that you are one that goes before us. I hope that we can appreciate that now. But in all things we suffer in this life, all things we endure, you were there with us in the midst of them. You were able to bear all things and endure all things. And you give us strength so that we can endure all things with you. Knowing and recognizing the fact that um, though we may go through trials and tribulations, we also recognize what Paul said when he said, such trials and tribulations that have overtake you are such which are common to man. But God is faithful and able to, prov- to give you strength to endure those things which you bear, and if not, to provide a means of escape. We know that Jesus will not lay upon us anything that we cannot bear, and we trust in him this morning, Lord, that you have that you hear him, that you recognize his voice, that you hear his advocacy on our behalf, you hear when he pleads for us, you hear when he advocates for us, when he pleads our cause, even as the accuser of the brethren stands in your midst to accuse those that are in Christ Jesus and remind you of those sins which they have done, he is there to plead his very blood in the fact that he is the high priest who has sacrificed once a perfect sacrifice for all time in the form of himself. And once he has done that, he has sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. Lord, we thank you for these things, Lord. We thank you for your grace, your goodness, your truth, your mercy. We thank you for all these things you have given us and more in Christ Jesus, knowing that though we have a cross to bear, we recognize that you will help us bear it. And at the end of this road, when it is all done, there is a kingdom that has no end. There are riches that we cannot even begin to understand or or recognize in this life and there are glories which we will behold and see in that day which we cannot at this point even begin to put into words lord we thank you for the cross we thank you for all that it symbolizes we thank you for what your son jesus has done on behalf of sinners like us in jesus precious and holy name we pray amen